Welcome to the Parkcast series, episode 51, Supervision in Child Welfare Practice. The Parkcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archive. In this Parkcast, we examine the claims made in research about supervision as it relates to social work and child welfare practice more specifically. Frequently asked questions about supervision models and approaches are incorporated with a critical assessment of the strengths and limitations of existing research. Introduction and Research Questions Supervision is a key process in child welfare work, both for organizational and interpersonal functions. In addition to promoting the safety, permanency, and well-being of children and youth, supervision provides the base from which frontline practitioners apply knowledge and refine their skills, put the agency's practice models, policies, and procedures into actual practice, receive guidance and feedback, remain motivated in performing their jobs well, and develop critical thinking skills in child welfare decision-making. Workers can be assisted during supervision to process the emotional impact of their work. At the same time, supervisors may use formal supervision time to complete managerial tasks, such as tracking performance targets. The supervisor-worker dyad impacts child welfare worker practice, and potentially the service delivered to children, youth, and families. It is important, therefore, to understand how supervision can be effective, efficient, and evidence-informed. A review of the existing literature on child welfare supervision is the first place to start in this endeavor. There's a comprehensive systematic review of the research on supervision in child welfare published in a peer-reviewed journal in 2013. This review includes excellent critical appraisal of the research. The authors describe what the existing body of research is on this topic and what it is actually saying. The take-home point of the study, and one that sets up our discussion here, is that we do not know much about the inner workings of supervision, nor do we know the impact of different supervision styles on functions of child, youth, and family outcomes. The following discussion will further unpack the literature and its implications for child welfare practice. While it is generally quite easy to locate research on supervision, the importance of critical appraisal cannot be understated. Critical appraisal is the ability to read a piece of information, determine the strength and validity of its claims, and to understand its limitations. We have developed three questions to guide our critical appraisal of the research about child welfare supervision. These questions are chosen because of the practical application and relevance to clinical practice. As we look to answer these questions with the best available research, critical appraisal of the claims of this research is the top priority. Research questions. What are the core functions of supervision in child welfare? What does supervision actually look like in child welfare practice? Is supervision effective in promoting outcomes for workers, organizations, and service users, that is children, youth, and families? What are the core functions of supervision in child welfare practice? FAQs. What does supervision mean? How is supervision of child welfare practitioners described in the literature? What are the skills supervisors need to be able to offer effective supervision? Broadly, the role of the child welfare supervisor is to uphold the mandates of the organization, promoting the safety, permanency, of, and well-being of children and youth. Frequently referenced functions of supervision are administration, education, and support. Since 
Duchenne and Harkness' seminal publication in the early 1990s, these concepts have been since expanded to incorporate roles related to organizational change, delineating the supervisor not only as an agency representative who completes administrative tasks, but a champion for his or her supervisees. In a systematic review of the literature on supervision in social service organizations, task assistance, social and emotional support, and interpersonal interaction were highlighted as key supervisory dimensions. Administrative or managerial roles. This means ensuring the boxes are ticked, forms are filled out, and performance measures are met. Education and task assistance. This means focus on educating, training, and developing workers so they are equipped to perform their jobs well. Social and emotional support. This encompasses responding to the worker's emotional needs and job-related stress. Interpersonal interaction. This includes workers' perceptions of the quality of their supervisory relationship and of supervision in general, as well as their overall satisfaction with their supervisor and their supervision. In recent years, there is a general consensus in the literature of a trend towards managerial and case management aspects of supervision taking precedence over clinical and supportive elements. The research that suggests this trend is rooted in anecdotal and qualitative studies, which provide insight into the experiences only of those involved in a study, and cannot speak for all supervision. These studies share supervisor feedback of the pressure to meet performance measures set by government. These functions have been expanded to include interactional components of supervision, highlighting the need for a give and take between supervisor and staff. Clinical supervision moves beyond an administrative focus to delve deeper into the context of a case. There are a few models to further delineate how this process might occur. Most commonly discussed in the literature are clinical, strengths-based, and reflective supervision. Central to these supervision models is the concept of parallel process, which recognizes that the work between supervisor and supervisee becomes the model for work between supervisee and, su and service user. While we lack the evaluative literature to determine whether specific supervision models are more effective than others at achieving specific outcomes for children, youth, and families, the concept of parallel process suggests that supervisors can impact the clients through modeling a certain practice approach with workers in supervision. Clinical supervision is a term used in the literature and in conversation to refer to a more in-depth discussion and an analysis of a particular case or practice situation. The term is often used to distance supervision from an administrative or managerial task from those that require more classically clinical social work skills. The implementation of a clinical supervision model can be evaluated similarly to the implementation of any practice model in child welfare. One example by Collins, Camargo, and Miller studied the implementation of clinical supervision techniques and workers' perceptions of the changes in supervisor practice, worker practice, and service user outcomes. Importantly, this is the perception of service user outcomes, not measured actual outcomes. While there are limitations to the methods used, and the results are specific to this practice model, the perspectives of supervisors were in line with the feedback of the literature about the implementation barriers of any new practice or approach. Supervisors faced time constraints in trying to adopt clinical approaches, high rates of staff turnover made implementation a challenge, and the overall stressfulness of the work and workload in general was not effectively implemented overall. The study highlights that the clinical approaches differ, as briefly described below, how they are introduced and implemented in an organization are important to evaluate alongside outcomes for children, youth, and families. 
Strengths-Based Supervision As with strengths-based practice generally, supervision of this sort promotes the recognition of strength and potential in others. According to Leitz, strengths-based supervision was developed to enhance effective implementation of family-centered practice. There are four components of this approach to child welfare practice. 1. Parallel family-centered practice principles in supervision. 2. Integrate crisis-oriented and in-depth supervisory processes. 3. Use both individual and group clinical instruction and supervision. 4. Conduct administrative, education, and support functions of supervision. To date, evaluations of strengths-based supervision training report observed changes in practice by workers. Proponents of strength-based supervision describe this model as promoting intentionality. The approach itself has been used in child welfare. The model simply combines the core functions from the literature and conceptualizes them into one model that can be implemented through training. The actual practice of supervision is highlighted as a key interaction point where this training is linked to practice for child welfare workers. Reflective supervision. As with strengths-based supervision, researchers supporting a reflective model promote its incorporation throughout supervision and not an additional optional model when time permits. Reflective supervision is an interactive model premised on the positive supervisor-supervisee relationship as providing the opportunity for critical thinking. Interactional, reflective supervision contains fundamental techniques not dissimilar to those in other clinical social work settings, including facilitation, eliciting, probing, observing, and confronting. Reflection serves many key functions in the child welfare context to acknowledge the emotional nature of the work and to process connections between circumstances. Necessarily in this model, reflection leads to analysis. Workers can use reflective supervision to apply lessons from one situation to another, to test hypotheses against research evidence, and to translate this analysis into service delivery. What does supervision actually look like in child welfare practice? Does everyone do supervision the same way? Understanding what happens in supervision is fundamental to our understanding of the relationship between organizational context, good practice, and outcomes for children and families. Unfortunately, the day-to-day practice of supervision as it occurs in child welfare agencies across Canada is largely unknown. To answer this question, we would be looking for a large comprehensive survey or study to get a sample for multiple locations, teams, and supervisors. Available at present are small-scale qualitative studies which set out with a group in mind, for example, supervisors at one agency, using focus group formats, interviews, or surveys to ask these individuals about their experiences of supervision. Much of the literature on supervision is conceptual in nature, often focusing on descriptive categories or supervisory style or function. One study emerged in this literature review, which examines the contents of records of formal supervision in one agency in the UK. While there are many limitations to this study, for example, it was a small sample size, it was non-randomized, and it was not able to analyze or include informal supervision. And the findings of the study do not unpack the mystery that is child welfare supervision. However, this is an interesting approach to begin to explore the inner workings of supervision. In their analysis of written records of formal supervision, the authors found summary information about the child and family to be consistent, 
However, there was information commonly missing regarding the steps taken to get from processing information to acting on it, and how these actions are determined remains unclear. Similarly, Hunt and Goddard mentioned the difficulty in assessing supervision records, as brought to our attention in the case of an inquest following a child death. It is not always clear in reviewing supervision records whether conversations happened and were not recorded, or whether steps were altogether skipped. In the case of an inquest, there was a failure to record any conversation with the child himself, and thus his preferences and perspective were absent. If we are to uncover what the practice of supervision looks like, a potential next step may be to adequately record these details. In combination, multiple smaller focus group studies suggest that most supervisors report using case management as opposed to the client-centered approach due to workload. More detailed information about the models being used would be helpful for developing effective practice. Is supervision effective in promoting positive outcomes for workers, organizations, and service users? FAQs. What should I be doing in supervision? What are the best supervision models in child welfare? What makes a good supervisor? Considering this question, along with the previous section, we have reached a bit of a hurdle. If we do not know what is happening in supervision, that is the specific supports provided to workers, approach or model supervisors are working from, how can we measure the impact of supervision on outcomes? This question is unpacked in the following critical appraisal. Qualities and skills of effective supervisors. When using the term effective supervision, it is important to understand what we are hoping to have an effect on. Effective supervisors can be said to be positively impacting any range of outcomes from worker factors like personal empowerment, use of strengths-based approach or job satisfaction, to organizational factors like uptake of a specific program or service model among staff, to service user outcomes like reunification of parents and adolescents or fewer children being brought into care. However, there are no existing studies known to the author that use the appropriate methodology to make the claim of whether supervision is effective. The studies located during this literature review did not use experimental research methods, but rather are small qualitative studies of survey current supervisors and child welfare workers on their perceptions of the traits of an effective supervisor. This research method is not generalizable. It cannot speak to the experiences of any supervisors other than those specific people who participated in this study, nor does it answer the question of which characteristics are actually effective. One such study, entitled The Effective Child Welfare Unit Supervisor, interviewed current supervisors on their perceptions of what makes an effective supervisor. By simply reading the title, one might assume this paper can describe the traits of an effective supervisor. However, the methodology does not have the ability to support or refute this claim. The findings of the study tell us that a group of 11 supervisors in Colorado believe that the skills necessary for a child welfare supervisor include upholding the mission to support children and families, organizational skills, not micromanaging staff, demonstrating honesty, empathy, and humility in relationships with supervisees, and being supportive and patient with supervisees. The claim made in this title and subsequent methodology are a perfect example of the need for critical thinking and evidence-informed practice. This one study cannot speak for all supervisors, nor does it tell us what makes a supervisor actually effective. This study can contribute to the body of literature what we consider when we're gathering evidence about supervision. 
Similarly, another study using questionnaires, interviews, and focus groups asked what skills are most important to supervision and how these skills can be developed. Using a sample from Northern British Columbia, the authors found communication to be the most important supervisory skill. To communicate clearly, to build relationships, and to deal with difficult situations. It also applied to developing a clearly a sense of self-awareness. Contrary to the previously described research, the author's use of a qualitative and exploratory study more accurately matches their intention, which was to better understand the skills that are most important to supervision in northern British Columbia. The limitations of this methodology are also outlined much more clearly. These two studies help to understand that in order to know what is effective, we need to understand the context of our practice as well as the outcome we are hoping to have an effect on. Worker outcomes. A rigorous review of the research literature on the impact of supervision on worker outcomes was published in 2009. This study gathered all existing research on the topic using sophisticated statistical methods that allowed the researchers to combine the various studies into one analysis and learn what the research says on a whole. The authors found that the supervisor functions of task assistance, social and emotional support, and supervisory interpersonal interaction were positively and significantly related to valuable worker outcomes. These outcomes included empowerment, job satisfaction, and retention. These studies typically measure workers' perceptions of the support they receive, which further highlights the variability in exactly what supervisors can and do provide to supervisees. Contrarily and anecdotally, a lack of supportive supervision is reported to contribute to uncertainty among child welfare practitioners about where to seek support in challenging situations. Organizational Outcomes One study reports on the impact of supervision on professional organizational culture. The authors used a measured of two factors from the Survey of Organizational Excellence, supervisor and team effectiveness. As the effectiveness of supervision increased, the organizational culture was significantly more characterized by evidence-informed practice. This measure is not reported on in any other studies in the reviewed literature. Child, Youth, and Family Outcomes While we do not have a similar study to evaluate the impact on child, youth, and family outcomes, Authors hypothesize that there would be positive impacts trickled down through improvements in worker outcomes. This is the concept of parallel process as described above. Essentially, it is expected that practice approaches modeled in supervision would be carried out in interactions with children, youth, and families. However, without research to support this idea, the impact of supervision on service user outcome ultimately remains unknown. Conclusion the above discussion emphasized approaching the literature with a critical lens to determine the validity of claims being made. On the whole, research on child welfare supervision is a compilation of non-generalizable studies with a diverse array of measures that make it difficult to synthesize the knowledge base. Importantly, we do not have access to studies that acknowledge the role of supervision in child, youth, and family outcomes. As you have likely noticed, Studies ranging from the type of outcome that they're examining and the measure or conceptualization of supervision. There's a fairly developed theoretical literature base that describes functions and models of child welfare supervision.
You have been listening to the Parkcast series, episode 51, Supervision in Child Welfare Practice. The Parkcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information on this episode's topic or other episodes in the Parkcast series, please visit www.parkcanada.org.